Yo, this is Brad Rickle. Welcome to the Brad Rickle Brief. On today's episode, I wanted to talk about drinking. And as you might have noticed when you clicked on the episode, there's a C on it. And the C is not for cookie. It's for culinary. And I think that's a good category to label anything when talking about food, wine, what we're eating, what we're drinking. And that is appropriate because I'm sitting here in the kitchen going through the process of making a nice, hopefully delicious loaf of sourdough bread, waiting for tonight's dinner. Mallory's parents are coming into town, and we're going to have a glass of two or three or four glasses of wine with dinner. At least I hope so. And Mallory's family, they do something great. Never heard about it before. They do a Christmas Eve tradition of oyster stew. And I like hearing and experiencing family traditions. My family, we always do, we always did, and I try to do as many as I can, surf and turf for Christmas dinners. I think the normal thing is ham, something like that, but surf and turf is better, right? I've been dry aging some steaks, some ribeyes in the refrigerator for the last few days, and I'm going to pull those guys out, and I'm going to sous vide them right to perfection. Mallory's family does oyster stew on Christmas Eve, And I really like how they marry up. She has her Christmas Eve tradition, and I have my Christmas tradition. And I can't say that I've ever had oyster stew before, but I fully endorse that she does it every single year. Because these are the types of traditions that carry so much weight as we grow older, the stories, the memories. And there's no other meal that can possibly substitute over family traditions. No matter how good the ham is going to be, it's not going to replace my ribeyes that I like to do for for Christmas. No matter, we could be cracking open lobsters tonight, and it wouldn't be the same because it's not oyster stew. It's what the decosters do. And it's like wine in that regard. Wine's more about a story or the company or the meal. Simply the experience is more to do with what you're thinking about the wine more than the grape the tannins, the oakiness, whatever you're looking for. I've had cheap bottles of wine that are just wonderful because they're anchored by good family and friends, good conversations. I've had expensive bottles of wine that just taste like complete dog shit because I was in a bad mood or I didn't like the company. The conversation was bad. Mallory and I were watching a show on Hulu recommended by our friends. It's called The Wine Show. The premise of the show as they go around Italy looking for great bottles of wine. And in doing so, they talk about the process, tasting, culture, tradition, and then review some gadgets that make the wine taste better, like aerators or something like that. It's a good show so far. So thank you, Gary and Amanda, if you're listening, thank you for recommending it. And Gary and Amanda, by the way, are some of our best friends. I've known them, I've known Gary since he was my boss when I was working at the government building. He was a good boss. But he and Amanda, as friends, are way better. Best friends. We've been doing this thing with them where we rotate dinner parties, and Amanda showed us the way here. Something I think they they will tell is that they pick this up in Italy with their friends, and they're trying to replicate it to some degree. And it's difficult because you need very exact people to do this with. This is a lot of courses over a long period of time 
with lots of drinking, lots of conversation. You eat, you drink, you talk. You eat, you drink, you talk. You eat, you drink, you talk. And it sounds easy enough, but it's difficult to pull off. There's, there is so much time that conversation and drinking to a large extent is critical. We've tried this with other family members, with other friends, and it just doesn't work the same. You need the right group for this kind of thing to work. I didn't think much about it. I didn't think much of wine before I met Gary and Amanda. Whatever tasted good, whatever typically cheaper the better. And I remember Gary Gary giving me, uh, not giving me, Gary gave a nice little chuckle when they first invited us over. And Amanda, Amanda spent about three days in the kitchen prior to us getting there, getting everything ready, preparing everything. And I bring over this $10 Kirkland Pinot Grigio that I had been drinking for the last few weeks. It's a drinkable bottle of wine. It's very approachable. It's a drinkable bottle of wine. And when I'm cooking mussels on the stove, it's still preferred. I like it, but it's not the bottle you bring to a friend's house for an event like this. Even Mallory beforehand, she told me, she was like, it's not a good idea to bring this bottle to Gary and Amanda's. I don't know them all that well, but this doesn't seem right. And I'm thinking to myself, Gary and I, we're from the Midwest. He's going to get a kick out of this. He doesn't care. And I guess I'm the asshole because I bring this thing and poor Amanda must be thinking, who is this PBR swelling shit kicking hick? But Gary and Amanda, they're great sports. They drink it. They don't say anything. But what we do now is different. I don't bring the $10 bottle of wine over to Gary and Amanda's anymore. But Gary and Amanda, they start talking about their time in Italy, going over various famous winemaking places that they've been, like Montepulciano. Their passion for it, it comes through. It made me very curious, and I dove into it a little bit. And that's how I learn on a subject. I get on a scent trail, normally provided by somebody else's passion, and I start doing a deep dive into it till I burn out. I could never do a PhD like Mallory is doing because I burn out on a subject so quickly. Like, it's just another another feather in the cap for what Mallory is doing right now. So I start learning about wine regions, and I watch the movie Soam, and Soam just talks about the certifications and the processes that sommeliers go through when they're becoming master wine people. And the craziest part of this whole thing is they just need to have this deep knowledge on like every wine area in the world. Even if there was nothing more to being a sommelier than this, that's, that's enough. Just knowing where every single wine is made and what the climate conditions are, what the soil's like, who's running, who's, who's running the chateau, that's just incredible as is. It's a PhD in wine. Anyway, one of the questions they asked all these sommeliers was, what kind of wine do you prefer drinking? And the common answer was Cru Beaujolais. So I look into this Beaujolais thing, and I find that it's this area in France, just south of Burgundy. And what makes this area special is that the winemakers decide to keep their practice as natural as possible, or at least some of them. They just crush the grapes, put the juice in the skins in an oak barrel, they pitch it out back, 
and they just let it go. Whatever happens, happens. There's something very romantic about that. And initially I thought, why is this so special? I'm watching the movie. Isn't that what wine is? Isn't that what we're drinking? So it confused me. I thought all wine was was fermented grape juice. This was the healthiest thing as far as alcohol goes that I could be drinking. So I started going down this other trail about why is this a special concept? Why do they prefer Cru Beaujolais? And it left me at the end with a pretty empty feeling. I was struck by how obvious all this information was, but it just didn't occur to me. There's a whole business out there. It's mass-produced wine. The two buck chucks. And not just them. It's just not a Trader Joe's. It's everywhere. Nice flavor bottled, case after case, year after year. Consistent. It's like a Big Mac. And of course they do. Why wouldn't they? You want the wine to taste the same every single bottle you open up because that's what consumers are looking for, the consistency. Mass-produced to taste the same no matter what year or where you are in the world. And some of the transgressions, as I'm learning about this, seemed more forgivable than others. I can understand if a winemaker wants to use a different strain of yeast, if there's something natural to their particular area, but they want to use a German yeast instead of the French. Okay, I buy it. I'm okay with it. Maybe they want to add oak chips. They're using stainless steel vats instead of oak barrels because it's reusable and sustainable in whatever word they want to use, so they put oak chips on top of the wine compared to letting it age in an oak barrel. All right, fine, no issue with me. But I found out there's a chemical common additive called Mega Purple, and it just changed the rest of the narrative in my mind. Wine produced from mass grapes is likely to taste bad, whether it's the growing process, the harvesting process, getting transported cross-country, cross-continents. At least this isn't going to be a flavor that we're expecting from wine. More often than not, it tastes harsh. And this is where Mega Purple comes in. This Mega Purple smooths out flavor, gives it a nice fruity taste, and it hides even certain types of spoilage. It even adds a deep color, right? It's called Mega Purple, and it's super concentrated. You don't need to add a lot to tens of thousands of gallons of wine to make it be effective. Basically, if somebody produces a bad batch of wine, they can just spray some of this Mega Purple bottle into their vat, and it makes it palatable enough to drink. They can sell it. And another trick that I read about was the use of alcohol. Simply increasing the alcohol content can be done by adding sugar while it's fermenting. Very simple. And alcohol will cover up a lot of mistakes the wine producers come across. Alcohol is powerful. And, right, you drink bourbon, and it's going to be 80 proof, 90 proof, 100 proof. It just punches you right in the mouth. Some wines come across like that. Think about the mistakes that are on the other side of that. And the list goes on. I don't want to talk about it all, but there are additives for antioxidants, tannins, acidifiers, deacidifiers if it gets too acidy, clarifying agents, stabilizers. And regarding stabilizers, we're used to sulfites in wine. It's a really common practice because it needs to be shelf-stable to some degree. 
but even producers add too much sulfites at times. And I get why wine producers do this. I get why they sell their wine. They want to make money, grow next year's vintage, do it again. But I felt a little cheated after a few weeks of looking into this. I've made beer before at home with Mallory. Our neighbor, Scott, he came over and showed us how to do it, and it was a great learning experience. In the end, you can make a pretty decent six-pack of beer at your house with enough additives, but it's just frankly cheaper to just go out and buy a case that somebody else already made. But all this, this beer-making process that I learned, all this came together. There are vineyards around here, and I started thinking about how tough it is to come up with a good bottle of wine, but yet why is everybody making such a good bottle? How can someone drive a garbage truck for 38 years and start a vineyard in the first year they produce grapes? It's out of this world. It doesn't add up. I can get it if somebody has like restaurant experience and they were a sommelier for 48 years and they start a vineyard. Sure, I get it. It's a good story. It just didn't make sense to me. But then all of a sudden it did. It just clicked. How many vineyards are buying grapes from different places? They can't grow enough grapes where they are. They ferment it with added yeast, not natural to where they are. They add sugar to pump up the alcohol content because that's what people are looking for. And it helps cover up the mistakes. If you're drinking something with 15, 16% alcohol for wine, yeah, something bad probably happened. And then even at the end, if there's just something they want to touch more fruity, they want it darker, they can just put whatever additive they want to to finish it out nicely. How many people are doing this? I don't know. That's kind of the question. And it leaves you just kind of spinning in your chair like, well, why the hell am I even drinking wine? Because probably most of them are. And we're paying a lot of money for these bottles. And we're not getting lied to, but they're not being forthright with how they're making the wine. And it's a nice little secret in the wine business. You can look at this. There are stories that cover it. And the majority of, of the articles say the same thing. Most people are doing it, but they don't know to the degree of which they're doing it. If you search for it, not many, if any, vineyards will tell you that they're using it. But they, they might be quick to point out who else is using it, especially if it's their competition. They might say something like, oh yeah, so many people use Mega Purple, but we don't. And it might not make a difference for you. You might be drinking something different, something like a coffee stout beer. And saying, Brad, like, who gives a shit if they just use a coffee chemical additive compared to soaking the coffee beans? It doesn't matter to me. I just like the taste of the beer. I guess I just feel a little cheated. And I feel like it would be better if they just told us how they were doing it, what they were putting in it. Maybe it just makes it more manageable, and that's their fear. If they say what they're putting in there, their wine might not fetch the price that it otherwise would. If they put in so many additives, it might drop the price down, because who wants to pay for for a Big Mac, right? If you're thinking you're getting a ribeye, but you find it's a Big Mac, you're going to pay different prices there. And think about that as you drink your next bottle of wine. I'm proud to buy local as much as I can. Meat, eggs, flour, honey, 
yeah, pretty typically I buy local weekly for that and I have different places to pick that stuff up. But if I found out my eggs from whatever farm are doing the same thing as Eglin's Best, they're just cramming a bunch of chickens into a windowless, vented, hooded area, I'm probably going to stop buying my eggs from them because that's not what I'm trying to buy. And that's where I'm currently at with wine. Like I said, sometimes I don't care because the end justifies the mean. If I'm cooking with it, I'm going to grab a cheap bottle because it matters less than somebody making this $150 bottle of Cru Beaujolais. That might be fantastic because most of the garbage is going to distill out anyway. Or I use so little of it, that it doesn't really matter. I actually use those little boxes of wine that you can buy at the store because it's great. It holds two, three cups, and it's shelf-stable, so I can open it up. It can sit out there for a week after I open it, and it's going to taste just the same, and I only need a cup. But for drinking, if I'm leaning towards wine, I'm now looking for something different. So I go by just a couple heuristics just for helping me dial it in, and it filters out 90% of the wine. The first thing I look for is alcohol content. I shoot for 13% or lower. Go out and try that. It's difficult. I think alcohol might be one of the primary ways they cover up bad winemaking. If someone can make a bottle at 12.5% alcohol, I feel very confident that they know what they're doing and they're proud of it. I don't typically like getting punched in the face with ethanol when I'm drinking wine. I'll choose something else if that's what I'm going for. And just with that one simple thing, just alcohol, I've eliminated, I've eliminated 90% of the bottles you're going to go find on your shelf store or at the local vineyard. I've found that there are a couple places that follow this protocol pretty standardly, and they're going to typically be in France or Italy or some parts of California. People with a lot of history, a lot of tradition, a lot of people with skin in the game and have something serious to lose if they found to not be going by the right practice. And with that, I just start looking at other designations. And one of the things that seem really interesting to me of just being prideful in your work is growing their own grapes on their own land in a specific area. DOCG for Italy, AOC for Italy. These are designations that you can find on the bottle that might tell you something like this. DOCG, I think, is going to be something that the grape has to be grown in a very narrow geographic area. So they're not going to be getting these mass-produced grapes coming in. And I'm sure that's even wrong. But I feel better about it. And maybe you don't care. And that's okay. I think this is simply just an interesting point that I like talking about. And I find it more comfortable for me when I'm spending $35 on a bottle of of wine that I have a tendency to go something from France or from Italy and I feel more confident that they're doing things the right way because they have so much more to lose. They've been doing it for so many hundreds of years that this is the 8th, 10th generation running the vineyard that if they're doing things the wrong way and they get found out, it might cripple generations of their family. And if somebody... Here, stateside starts a vineyard and their first batch doesn't turn out well. What's more likely to happen? 
them to dump it and say, I can't ruin my reputation or make a couple squirts of additives and make it tasty and ship it out. See what people will pay for it. And that's just, that's just my take. One guy's opinion. In the end, drink what you like. That's always the best thing to go by. You want to put ice in your wine? Put ice in your wine. You want to put fruit in there? Put fruit in there. You want to water down your bourbon? Go for it. It's you. Like what tastes good to me might not taste good to you and vice versa. But be comfortable with drinking what you like. And that's it, folks. Thanks for taking the time listening today. Music is provided by James Spensley. That dude knows how to shred. See you later, folks. I am out. Out.